Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Robbie here. Uh, this is episode number 34. And in this episode, my guest is the brilliant Anne Hathaway. So in a world where, as Anne says in this episode, we now give people just 11 seconds on average of attention before interrupting them. Anne's work as a believer in the tr- transformative power of listening and being heard is ever more important. Uh, she compares the experience of being truly heard to that of being loved. And this forms the heart of her work as a coach, a supervisor, a leadership developer, providing people with the generative attention and spaces in which to heal and grow. When Anne discovered Nancy Klein's work around the thinking environment, she saw her own life's work in that approach. Um, And since then, in 1993, she and Nancy have worked together at Time to Think, where Anne is a member of the senior faculty, taking on a number of important roles, which she talks about in this episode. Uh, In the conversation, we track her remarkable life and career from overcoming profound personal and professional challenges. We get into the details of those to becoming an inspirational and celebrated coach, mentor and change facilitator. We touch on so many important things. We talk about generative attention and how to listen in order to ignite rather than to um, to listening to speak or, or, or alternative ways of listening, listening to ignite the thinking of the other person. We talk about how listening skills can be the key to conflict resolution, even though Anne isn't a conflict resolution specialist. She tells a great story about about resolving conflict through listening. Um, she talks about the, We talk about the fact that good ideas can come from anywhere, regardless of a person's status or position. Uh, and we talk about how the thinking environment can create the possibility for that in a similar way to um, listeners who have listened to uh, episode 33 with Raquel Ark will remember Raquel talking about um, listening circles and, and we'll notice some echoes there. Um, we talk about how to empower people who don't trust their own inner wisdom and, and that feels like a very touching moment when Anne talks about that for me at least and the importance of creating conditions of safety in which people can heal um Anne describes the impact of time to time to think and the thinking environment as world shaking and explains how our train of thought can lead us to new horizons she also talks um towards the end of the conversation the last 20 minutes or so about her own recent complex PTSD diagnosis and how that diagnosis has been part of her healing journey and has led to her putting her head above the parapet more, including doing this interview. And when she shares shares that, I hope you can hear for me how privileged I felt that she was able to share that with us in this conversation. Um, And I know that for other people listening, that may be difficult to hear about, but also very powerful to hear about. Um, we, we put in in the show notes, we put links to the articles and blogs she mentions, including on coercive behavior. Um, and also, I want to catch that I may have confused. I talk about David Trelevin and somatic experiencing um, in terms of some training I've done around being aware of trauma in coaching. Um, now, David Trelevin's work on trauma-centered mindfulness is very powerful, and somatic experiencing, which is the work of Peter Levine, are very powerful. And although David and Peter interacted on the Coaches Rising training course that I did, um, I don't think that I'm not sure if my uh, attribution of the inspiration is quite right there. So just do do look into that. Um, Look, everybody, this was just a totally uh, a totally wonderful conversation to be a part of. There was so much going on. Like, I was very aware for thinking environment people who might be listening. I was listening back, wincing at myself, interrupting Anne at different times. We have a great conversation a little bit about, uh, or like I catch her certainly, and, and, and dutifully joins in when I catch myself worrying about that or thinking about that in the mid- middle of the conversation. So, um listen out for that um there's a really nice moment we take a break part way through uh because that's an important part of her and manages her energy 
Um, and we talk about that and why she does it and the practices that help her be at her best. And then I don't know if you'll notice this, but certainly in the conversation, I felt the energy shift after that. I don't know if it was my energy shifting or Anne's or both of us because we'd had this nice break. But I think that's a really nice part. So listen out to see if you can if you can catch that. Um before we move on with the conversation, I just wanted to uh, let any listeners who didn't listen to the last podcast episode know that my book is now out, my first book. So if you're interested in that, it's called How to Start, um, a book, business or creative project when you're stuck, How to Start When You're Stuck. You can find it on Amazon or there's a link in the show notes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, and it it's, uh, comes out of my 12-minute writing practice. Um, it's going to be part of a series of books written using and called The 12-Minute Method. Uh, and it's really about helping everybody take the first steps, this one, the start book, um, to creating something, whatever that thing is, that, that, that thing. But you know the one, the one that you're, you're always thinking about and you for some reason haven't started yet. So if that sounds like it might be something for you or for somebody you know, do check out. Um, you can search it for it on Amazon. There's links from my website or there's a link in the show notes where you're, wherever you're listening to this. Um, so uh, the only other thing I wanted to say before we uh, before we dive into this conversation with Anne is I always uh, I ask a prompt question of my guests, which is what would somebody who knows your journey really well tell me, Robbie, to ask you the guest about? Um, and uh, and it's something which which um, lots of guests don't do, which is she asked some of her her friends or people knew her journey to for their five questions and sent me 10 amazing ones from Eve and Monica and they were just so beautiful and form a really important part of this conversation and apologies Eve and Monica for botching who said what at one point um luckily uh, Anne very politely catches me on that so that's enough from me for now um Please enjoy this conversation with the amazing Anne Hathaway. I'm so glad to get to talk to her about her amazing journey and to talk about the amazing work she does and others do using the thinking environment. So um, enjoy episode number 34 of the Coach's Journey podcast with Anne Hathaway. Anne, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Thank you, Robbie, and, and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's um, as we were saying just before we switched on the recording, um, I was connected to you by Stephanie Archer, who's the business director at Time to Think, because I was interested in interviewing somebody who was a real expert in that because I read Nancy Klein's book, Time to Think, quite early on. It was one of those things where I'm sure lots of coaches will identify with this, where um. When you're first starting out as a coach or you're doing some training in something like that, you get lots of recommendations and that book kept coming uh, up in my list. And so I read it in the end and and it's been fun knowing that we were speaking because as we'll get into, I'm sure you, the thinking environment is a big part of your work. Um, as I was preparing for this interview, getting back into that space, it was great to be reminded of how, what a powerful set of uh, ways of thinking and model that is and how influential it's been for me so i'm i'm really looking forward to speaking about that at least a little bit in this conversation um but i'm but i'm really uh, excited to speak to you um about your journey because as after sometimes you get guest recommendations uh and as a podcast host and you read a bit about the person and you realize that it, it just isn't the right they're just not the right person for you to speak to no matter how much they or their PR company or the person that's connected to you thinks thinks that they are but with you it was obvious within about two minutes on your website that we were going to have a we would have a great conversation if we spoke so yeah thank you so much for making the time um and I, I wonder if if as a starting point as I almost always do in these conversations on this podcast we might start by 
asking you, when was the first time that you came across coaching in the way that we might think about it today? Oh, gosh. Um, that's quite a hard question, actually. I'm not really sure. Um, I guess probably sometime in, well, so, um, just thinking back, I, I first met Nancy Klein in 1993. So terrifyingly, um, 30 years next year, just doesn't seem possible. Um, and I guess I first used her work in, in the context of, of facilitating groups rather than one-to-one. But then what happened was that the leader of the group that I was working with asked me to work with her. Um, so that was probably the first time that I found myself being asked to coach somebody. Um, so yes I guess but that was oh goodness um, much later Um, Mm. so I guess the the short answer to your question is a long time ago (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's 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 interesting and that was one of the things I was interested to ask you about because like I just said and these days a lot of people come to time to think after having come to coaching uh you know because of an example like the one that I just gave where people just recommend the book you know I know that time to think is taught on some coaching training programs more general ones of course there's there's the the time to think faculty and trainings as well but it's but for you you came first to these ideas is that right and then gradually over time you came to use them one-on-one and until now you know coaching is one of the I can't remember headings on your website and it's obviously explicitly in the way that you know you obviously use it explicitly in the way that you work with people now so that's that's a kind of that's an interesting evolution I guess oh yes yes no I absolutely I came to to the thinking environment first and then coaching later yeah so it's interesting that you came to coaching second let's go back in a minute to coming to to time to think and Nancy's work and what you were doing before that. But first you just, and you may not, but do you remember when coaching as a thing, was it, was it just that when you did that one-on-one with the, with the leader of the group that you kind of became aware that coaching someone one-on-one was a, was a kind of a thing in that way, or was there some other moment? Um, no, I suppose it probably was then really. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose it, you know, it was sort of in the ether. Um, and one of the things that that Nancy started doing quite early on as as a cohort of us who, who trained with her in the um, in the thinking environment emerged was that we would have we would gather on a regular basis probably quarterly which which actually still goes on um, for um, what what she called in practice days, basically to get together and, and practice our skills. 
um, because then, as it still is now, you know, it was such an unusual thing for people to be listened to without interruption that, you know, you need to get together to sort of restore yourself almost from the trauma of being sort of constantly interrupted in the world generally. Um, so we would gather in in for these in practice states, and I'm sure people, other people were talking about coaching. And so, but um, the, the truth is it's so long ago, I don't remember. But, you know, the, the key thing is that I did come to, <laughs> did come to the thinking environment first. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll get to that in a sec, but before, we, well, maybe that's the place to go now, actually. So, so in 1993, you said, um, which I think I, I was looking a little bit, I think is about 20 years after Nancy Klein had started to, it, I found a, something which said 1973 was when this started being looked into. So about 20 yes. years into that, you yes. came to it. How did you find it? And, and what was happening in your life at the time? Ah, well, so I had, I'd started my career post-university in, in the recruitment industry in, um, in a company called Manpower, which at the time still exists, still in the recruitment industry, but at the time we only dealt with temporary staff. Um, and so found myself doing lots of interviewing and um, anyway, lo long story short, um, I became a leader in the organisation. Then I went off and did an MBA. Then I worked for another um, organisation within the service industry, service industries as a as a general manager. Then I got fired in the course of a hostile takeover bid. Ended up um, working for. Courtauld's Coatings, who um, had tried to recruit me when I left, when I finished my MBA. Um, and while I was on secondment from then to um, the European Foundation for Management Development in Brussels, um, I basically went skiing one day, um, fell down a mountain, broke my back, um, really wasn't fit enough to go hurtling around Europe anymore. And um, and at the same time, the business for which I was at HR director was closed down. So, um, so fundamentally, I found myself being made redundant, and and also with a serious back injury. Um, so, I've always joked that I I basically became an independent consultant by accident, literally by accident. Um, so I was, so that was 1992. And then in 1993, an old boss of mine from Manpower ran, just rang me up one day and said, I've just met this really amazing, interesting woman and I've read her book and I really want to do her training, but I need a partner to do it with. Um, will, you, will you come and do it with me? And um, so I'd never heard of this person. I hadn't read this book, but I trusted Val. So I said, yeah, fine. <laughs> and um, that's how I met Nancy. <laughs> and um, I just found myself thinking uh, that 
And I've always thought that this sounds terribly arrogant, but actually it is the truth. I found myself thinking she's written down what I've been doing all my life. Yeah. So I'd been listening in that way for a very long time. And it was, as it is for quite a lot of people who come to the thinking environment, it just absolutely resonated. Um, Yeah. Yeah, wow. And I mean, so much in there, Anne, like what what a moment in life to to go through with the redundancy and the injury and, Mm. you know, I'm sure so much around that. Yeah, it was all it was all pretty life changing, and and I made a few decisions that I shouldn't have made as well. Yes, but one of my big learnings from all of that is is never make big life decisions when you're feeling vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. One of my old coaches actually, he used to joke, you know, after you'd had a big conversation with somebody, just like I mean, joke and not joke, right? He used to say, "Don't break up with anyone or quit any jobs in the next forty eight hours." Yeah, right? and it's like <laughs> it makes sense because when you you know when you're in those places, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, so um, I wonder, first of all, is again, there's so many things I could ask about that and we'll get, get more into the thinking environment and, and w- exactly what you found there. But why do you think you had been doing that? Because, so, uh, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question in about three different clauses now so which is great about interviewing people because i don't have to think about my careful coaching questions or my coaching clients anyone who's listening is laughing at that now um for the inelegance of my questions sometimes but you know when we get into the thinking environment a bit more but this is true of coaching generally one of the things about it is it is an an unusual set of conditions which allows for something special to happen and the reason it's so powerful, people, I, in my view, is that it is an unusual set of conditions. And so it's interesting that you had been doing those things already, that, that what you felt was that this, this amazing woman had written down these things. Um, so why do you think you had been doing these things, which for most people are quite unusual already? Hmm. Well, funnily enough, a, a few years further on from that, so I guess probably late up late 90s early 2000s i was i was looking to expand my coaching practice and to 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 work as as an associate for some some coaching companies seemed to be you know an easy way to do that so i got a recommendation an, an introduction to somebody who at the time was was a really big noise in the in the coaching world um whose name I'm ashamed to say I can no longer remember, but actually I believe he's no longer with us. Um, anyway, so I, I managed to get an appointment with this guy and and we chatted for a bit and, and he said, well, and I talked about the thinking environment and my role as a, as a thinking partner. And, and he said, well, I've got absolutely no idea what you do. I really don't understand this work. Um, but tell me, when was the moment that you first decided you wanted to work with people? And I sat there thinking, what an odd question. <laughs> mm. um, and, and I said, to her, I've got no idea. It's just, I, I really have no idea. And he went, no, 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 but there must have been a moment. There must have been a moment when you decided you wanted to work with people. And I was sitting there going, no, 
know, always been like this. Sorry, can't. <laughs> and it was, it was a really fascinating conversation because <laughs> he was insistent that there must have been a moment, and I was utterly puzzled by the question. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, you know, the short answer is I don't know. Um, the the slightly longer answer is that um, growing up, I was definitely in the children are seen and not heard generation. So, um, and I think I probably as a small child made a decision um, very definitely to be seen and not heard, Um, not least because... I was the child of a father who'd been um, a prisoner of war of the Japanese for three and a half years. And now, of course, we would recognise that he had PTSD. Um, At the time, all we knew was that dad would have the most amazing rages from time to time. Um, And so, you know, you kept a low profile. Um, so I guess I grew up doing doing a lot of staying quiet and a lot of thinking I didn't have much to say because I was staying quiet. And um, and I sort of just discovered that when I started to have a bit of a social life, that actually a really valuable way to be part of the conversation was to ask a question and then really listen. And then it turned out that actually that was really interesting as well because you learnt a lot of stuff from people. So, yeah, I guess it just became a sort of part of how I developed growing up. Um, and, and, and that was the great thing about meeting Nancy, that, you know, I'd thought all of this time when I'd been listening to people that I wasn't really contributing to the conversation, I wasn't doing very much. And actually, when then I, I sort of discovered the thinking environment, I thought, oh, oh, actually, that was what I was doing. I was, in fact, doing something really quite useful for people. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where it came from, I think, you know, in looking back in and trying to analyse in retrospect, knowing that you were likely to ask me that question. <laughs> yeah, and not being the first person. I loved your way of saying there's no, I don't know for sure. And I think I don't know is a, is a great answer. And I love that story about that guy insisting that there must be a moment. And and I love this way you told that story because it really, you could probably see me laughing quietly so as not to interrupt you for people who are listening in, you know, but laughing about the story about, you know, realizing that in social situations, asking a question and staying quiet is not only, I, I, I you know, probably someone who's listened to this show before will think that I think I've told that story, my, my version of that story in almost the same words, right? I can remember very clearly realizing, you know, not getting, basically being a bored and also not really wanting to talk about myself in a social situation and finding that it got really interesting if I didn't talk about myself, if I just asked questions and was quiet. Um, 
We had a funny conversation though uh, before we switched on the recording about what can happen in social situations. If you know the the, the downside of sometimes listening too much in social situations, which is that people just talk at you for a, for a, for a very long time. Um, but but Anne, maybe because we're talking about it so much, and there will be some listeners who haven't come across the thinking environment. And I know this is going to be a tricky question for you, but you must get it a lot. And when you're teaching and, and all that kind of thing as well, can you like give us the you know? I, and actually, you know, I was aware thinking about this conversation that I've only read the the first of, of Nancy Klein's books. So I'm not an, by no means an expert in it, although I have more of a grounding than some listeners will. But can you give us a give us a sense of what makes the thinking environment special and maybe what it was when you first found it in 1993 that yeah made it special for you? Oh um okay well so the the work of the thinking environment is really comes out of an observation and a question. Um, and the observation that Nancy Klein made you know, back in the 70s and indeed before that was that the, the action that we take is really only as good as the thinking that we've done beforehand. So if you accept that as a reasonable premise, then the logical question becomes how then do we make our thinking the highest quality it can possibly be? And Nancy just set about exploring that question um, and observed that it seemed to be the case that what made the difference to the quality of people's thinking was that the way that they were treated as they were thinking. And ultimately encapsulated the way of treating people as a series of, of 10 components, we call them, which are fundamentally, most of them, um, attitudes of mind which lead to specific behaviours. But if I could summarise all of the behaviours, what it really comes down to is treating the person in front of you with the deepest possible respect. Um, although I, I read, a, I read a, a lovely quote from um, a coach that I follow on Twitter yesterday, um, and I'm not sure I can exactly the remember um, remember the, the precise words, but it was something like um, being heard is as close to love as most people wouldn't notice the difference. Yeah, so nice. um, over the years I have, I've, when I felt it was appropriate, I've, I've said to people, you know, fundamentally this is all about love. Um, so, but the, the key thing that's the, that, and that's, I guess it's the, the, the thing that I suppose most resonated for me about the thinking environment originally was that, um, it's about the quality of attention that you give to somebody. And we deliberately use the word attention rather than listening, um, and the th because we talk about generative attention, we talk about it's a quality of listening that actually is generative for the person who's who's um, being listened to. And the 
the key thing that's about this quality of attention is that most of the time in in our world, um, when people are listening, um, however good they are as a listener, most of the time they are listening to reply in some form or fashion. Um, so part of, of their brain while they're listening will be making value judgments about what they're hearing, formulating their own response to it, thinking of a question that they next want to ask, deciding whether they agree with what they're hearing or not. At some level, there's an awful lot of listening to reply. Um, or in the classic meeting situation, listening for the person who's currently speaking to breathe so you can jump in. Um, <laughs> So the thing about generative attention is that we refer it as, to it as listening to ignite, mm. uh, to listening to ignite the thinking of the other person. And what we're then doing is listening from the spe perspective of, gosh, how interesting, how, in how interesting that this person in front of me thinks that. I wonder what they will think next. I wonder where their next train of thought will take them. So we're... We're listening from the perspective of, of interest and fascination rather than what's my response to this. Just that, sorry, that's it's quite hard. To, it's quite hard to explain. And most of the time it's actually much easier to get people to experience it than it is to actually talk about it. Yeah, well, um, let me say, I think you do a good job of explaining something that, yeah, I get it. It's hard to explain. And I wouldn't be surprised if you've if that explanation gets some more people experiencing it because hearing it and those principles and those ideas that kind of, and I love listening to ignite, isn't that a beautiful phrase? Um, I'm sure they will be, you know, they'll be lighting little fires in, in, in some people who are listening. I wonder if you could give us though a little, like if that's the kind of the principles or the foundations or, or a kind of, uh, you know, uh, principle overview, practically, how do you train people to do that or, and, or whichever is more interesting for you, maybe like, what are the practical applications of it? I mean, I guess I know that, that some of that is some one-on-one -on -one work that people do in thinking partnerships. Some of it is group work. Some of it is organizational work. Like, yeah, maybe the first piece is practically, how do you train people to do that? And then we'll get to the other bit later. Oh, um, as you train any, anything, really, you explain the principles, you explain the components, um, you demonstrate, you get people to practice. Um, sorry, that sounds rather a flippant answer, really. Um, yeah, no, no, it's, it's good. It, and it, it tells us something about the question I asked, doesn't it? Um, but let's, let's just slow it down. So I think what I'm curious about is this is a really there is something unusual about that mindset that you're talking about and people aren't, I'm just, you know, this may not be a good question either. I'm, just, I'm not, people won't be used to being like that. And so how is it that people get from a place where they're not used to being like that? And then maybe they have to, I mean, they feel it. Is that part of the answer that how do you help people get to that place where they're able to practice this more, more, successfully or what are the things that people really struggle with when you're training people to practice that kind of thinking and listening um so i think that the i think that what tends to happen 
is that people are drawn to this work and want to train in it because they've had some experience of it. So they'll have come across Nancy talking about it or, you know, one of my colleagues or I talking about it and giving them an experience of it. Um, and one of the things that is is a constant source, source of shock to me is that, um, and Nancy wrote about this last year in her article in, in The Guardian, a sort of new book, was that 10 years ago um, there were and goodness knows how anybody, I, I suppose, you know, social scientists sort of actually record conversations and and time these things. But used to be the case that people typically would be, in most interactions, would be listened to for 20 seconds before they got interrupted. Um, apparently, the research has it that as of last year, that's down to 11 seconds, which is extraordinary. Um and so when you give people an experience of being listened to without being interrupted for five minutes, um, it can actually be world-shaking. Um, and, and also that what people notice is that they start to get breakthroughs. So, so I guess the, the key thing is that any... Whenever you learn the, the thinking environment approach, it's always experiential and you always need to bring. So, so for example, if, if somebody comes on a, on a thinking partnerships course, which is the sort of foundation level before you do the coach training, um, you always need to come with your own topics that you want to think about. Um, and they need to be sort of real and current and not something you've already worked worked out because then you get a real sort of live experience of 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 the impact of being listened to um and how it how it creates breakthroughs because when we are when we're interrupted or when somebody asks questions or this what's happening is that they're basically taken taking us off on their train of thought whereas if we are listened to without interruption and we trust our own train of thought, um, which is one of the things that sometimes people have to learn to do um, as coaches. Um, once once we, we have the space to go off on our own train of thought, um, we get to places that we really didn't expect um, and solve things that we didn't think we were going to. Um, so I've completely forgotten what the question was. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Me too, Anne. I've just went Anne. off on a... <laughs> it's really beautiful. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> it's so funny having a conversation like this with someone like you talking about something like the thinking environment because it's impossible not to be thinking. You know, my thinking, I just know, you know, obviously you see lots of levels. I'm aware that I'm about to interrupt. I'm aware that I, you know, it's like... I know the power of this kind of thing. And it's really interesting then to 
notice that we can't always operate in that way, or it doesn't feel like we can because, well, but maybe that's an interesting place for us just to play and see if, see if anything emerges on this. Like it doesn't feel like, you know, because we're creating something here that isn't, we're not doing that specific thing, which we would be doing if we had an agreement that we were doing a thinking partnership and, and and so I am here creating something and you're being a very generous guest with your time and we're dancing together and seeing what emerges and that's different. And so I'm aware that I have, you know, compared to my normal coaching conversations, which is a third different type of conversation we could have. Um, you know, I'm aware that I'm thinking more, you know, what I notice as a practitioner is that when I'm interviewing someone, I'm thinking more that I am in a coaching session, like quite a bit more because I'm aware of time in a different way. I'm aware of topics in a different way. I'm aware of like what a listener's experience might be. And so there's a few different more levels going on. And then, but it's interesting then for us to think, you know, about the thinking environment, which is this very powerful set of, um, set of ideas pulled together to make for a very powerful experience. And, and I remember, you know, my listening experience, which then when I read my experience of being listened to in a different way, which then when I read the thinking environment, a little like uh, time to think a little like when you came to it, I was like, oh, this is, this is a, well, for me, it was like, this is a very explicit description of, of that thing that I've experienced. And then, you know, you also get the sense, uh, let's see, where do we, where do I take this thought now? Hmm. So there's a sense that's a way that we can be if we, especially if we've practiced, especially if we've taken advice from, you know, brilliant people who have thought about this more than us, we can shortcut to a place where we can create that kind of environment for people, that kind of thinking. I guess I'm curious, that's not the kind of thinking that we do most of the time. And, and this is actually a question that we I had in from, well, I have a community of coaches that surround the podcast and some of them sometimes submit questions. And, and one of the questions that I got for you was, um, will that kind of attention that we've just been talking about ever become the norm? And in fact, you know, what the, what Alex who, who sent it in said was it'd be amazing if it, if it would, but the current way seems to be baked into a lot of the way that humans operate in, in his view. And I guess I'm curious with all that from me, you know, feel free to, to take this wherever your attention takes us or, or your intuition, but will this become, is this becoming more of the norm? Will it become more of the norm? Can it be, can it, or should it be the only way we interact? Ooh. Um, so I suppose that I and my colleagues, that you know, that's what we're working towards for it to become the norm. Um, honestly, I think we're quite a long way from that. Yeah. Have you felt progress there? Um, I, to be honest, I'm not sure I have. I mean, apart from the fact that there are a whole lot more thinking environment practitioners around the world than there ever used to be. So, so in that sense, of course, yes. And what, what you don't see is the um, is the is the ripples. So I mean, I was I was just I was just thinking about this the other day that um I have worked in 
two organisations um, 15 years apart and bringing the thinking environment to their to their teams, um, although actually I've also um, in both organisations was asked to coach people as well. Um, but in both cases, they have ended up, when they came to um, define the culture that they were seeking to create, in both cases, they um, somehow or other that a some formulation of listening has appeared in in the description of the culture that they they are wanting to create so i guess that gives me a certain amount of hope yeah. that you know that even if if not everybody is listening basically if 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 more people end up listening for longer than 11 seconds to each other um, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's like, I remember when I came across the ideas and, you know, partly it was because I was moving into this field of work when I was reading them and there is a sense of, you know, in, in time to think there's a sense of what might be possible in parenting, in mm. politics, in organizations and schools, you know, and I know a little, you know, the fact that, there are more practitioners now than before. Like uh, from the outside, it feels like there must be, there must be that movement towards, you know, greater than 11, more greater than 11 seconds. Although I think there's a, you know, we could, we could go on a whole sidebar about how the world is better at interrupting us. So, you know, it's like, there are many, many interruptions, right? I was just saying before I chucked my phone over here, because it's like, I don't want that to interrupt us. And that's what interrupts me more than people, I sometimes think. Um, so there's a there's a interesting battle to be fought then between, on the one side, big tech, and on the other side, uh, time to think practitioners growing around the world. Um, yeah. hmm. I guess, though, I'm curious a little bit about your hesitancy to say that you've seen progress and and where where that comes from so i know this is not you know in some ways this is not that nice a question to ask but there's the flash of hope but your first answer you kind of felt like it was more i'm not sure i have seen progress and i wonder what is that that's is that is that the kind of research piece about interruptions or or what is that that fuels that that questioning um that's probably me spending far too much time fretting about the current political situation in the UK, frankly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and rather than than taking a, a, a bigger view of what's going on around the world. And actually, I think if we, I mean, the, the very fact that more and more people are coming forward to train as, as some to think practitioners, um, and of course, then they're taking the work out to, to other people and to organisations. Um, I think you know it has to be, um, it has to be spreading, and and actually you know there's there's enough evidence of you know making a difference in people's lives that um, that I do have hope about it, and I would have to say that there's still loads of people around who. Um, and maybe this is just, you know, the downside of being a good listener 
is that you you get that situation of that dinner party that I was talking about earlier on, where I asked a question and you know the person was you know off and running for for half an hour, and then I asked him another question and then he talked for another half an hour, and so. Yeah, it's one. It's one of the things that I've had to learn over the years. That um, it's that if I, if I want to participate in the question in a conversation, I have to learn to interrupt. Which is bizarre because most people have to learn not to inter- interrupt. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? It's like, and I feel it as well sometimes. It's like there's there's some yeah mostly we, we not interrupting is incredibly powerful and yet it's almost like you know because there is a lot of not listening you're absolutely right and in in the UK in the political situation I would I would say pretty much everyone on all sides feels like no one listens to them uh, and mm-hmm. that's a, a problem or certainly they feel like the other side doesn't listen to them and that's probably true um, and for everybody. <laughs> And so it's interesting, isn't it? Like in some ways, w- one of the thoughts that crossed my mind when you were speaking just then is, you know, you need to kind of interrupt the current way of being to be able to allow a new way of being to emerge. And when the when one of the foundational principles of doing something really transformative, like creating a thinking environment, is to not interrupt, that's really tricky. Um, and it does sometimes mean that, you know, people who are really interested in listening just get talked at for a long time. And it could feel kind of, I've had it feel kind of invasive to be yeah. kind of talked at so much. And, you know, so it's it's a really tricky one, isn't it? It's, it is one of the paradoxes of, of the thinking environment and, and indeed teaching this work. And I've, and I've, I've kind of joked about it with colleagues before now that, um, if this work is all about creating the conditions for real, really good, high quality, independent thinking, um, then how is it that we actually have to tell people what to do in order to get them yeah. to think independently? So it's yeah, it's 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 a classic paradox. But just to go back to your your earlier point, um, I was I was asked by um, a corporate client recently to. Um, a corporate client r- rang me up and said, "We've got a conflict happening between two of our managers. Um, do you think you can come and help?" So I said, "Look, you know, I'm I am not a conflict specialist. Um, I'm not a trained mediator, but I'm happy to to listen to each of these two people and you know see if there's anything that." Um, I might be able to to do anyway. So, long story short, I ended up actually it's ended up with both of the parties having coaching, um, and I'm coaching the the senior manager, and one of my associates is coaching the um, the person who's the direct report. But actually, what emerged was that both of them weren't listening to each other. <laughs> And and within me having a couple of sessions with um, with the woman who's who's the manager, the direct port was going. I can tell there's a difference here, and I think that the coaching has made a difference. And please, can I have some too? Mm. 
Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's just a classic example of, you know, we think we think it's it's conflict, but actually the, the heart of it is these two people are not listening to each other. Yeah, but also I love what you say that, you know, the, the direct report can see the difference there. And it, that, that questions my assumption or the idea I put forward about the need for interruption. And it's possible that all the problems of people operating in the way that that involves not listening is because no one is listened to. And then actually, if you, you know, the hopeful side would be if you train enough listeners up, then the, at some point a critical mass of, of listening yeah. happens whereby, you know, where does the... I don't know what you'd call it, conflict for one of a better phrase, come from. Well, maybe it comes from that. And and yeah. maybe we see that shift happen that way. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it would be like, it's, you know, <laughs> my assumption that there needs to be some interruption. I would like, it would be fun to test that by instead of doing that, just getting everyone to be listened to really well, mm-hmm. you know, even just once a month and, and see what happens in yeah. those kind of political dialogues mm-hmm. and elsewhere. And I wonder if we could like, it's like we've been in the thinking environment ideas for a little while. I wonder if we could just come back to your story. Um, sure. You know, go, coming back to that point in 1993 where you did that training. And, and I, you know, I wanted to slow down a little bit because you said you had this really serious accident just before that. So when you came to the training, I mean, that, you know, were you still in recovery from that? You know, what was happening with work? And then... Yeah, what emerged as you did that training, and how did it get from uh, an idea of a of a from your old boss to this thing that clearly is such an important part of your work and your life? Ooh, um, well, so I'm not quite as old as you've made me. <laughs> this is 1993 that I first met. That's what did I say then? Did I say 83? 83. Sorry, I did mean 90. I looked down at my yeah. paper and it did say yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, so um, I. Lord, so what was the what was the first bit of your question? Sorry. So first of all, yeah, good, good, good question. So first of all, yeah, what was that you you'd broken your back, you said. So you yeah. were still in the middle of that recovery, I yeah. imagine, in 1993 when you, yes, when I you came to that training. And yeah. you know, that's quite a state to go through, quite a quite a thing. And in fact, maybe this is a chance to ask. So I <laughs> Some regular listeners will know that I sometimes I send some prompts through. I ask for some prompts, some some uh, talking points, and I'm going to ask you a completely different question to what I asked you before. So prepare yourself for this. But I ask for some talking points, and you, um, which is to get, it's to think of what someone who knew you really well and what they would ask you. And you did what surprisingly few people do, which is you asked some people who know you really well what they would ask you. And, and one of them said this absolutely, you know, sent this absolutely amazing question through. Um, uh, let me find it. You know talking about the, you know, the skiing accident, the hostile takeover, and many other things that you have, um, you have been through, like, you know, talking about loss, talking about a car accident, talking about all these things. And just asking really, uh, you know, her question, this is Eve. Eve's question was, where did you find the strength to carry on? So I guess I'm, I'm curious, as we're talking about that accident, you know, where does that strength come from Mm. well i i was i was actually having um i was having a thinking session with um with monica who asked me that question last week and so she asked me the question and um oh sorry well you're absolutely right with monica schultz yeah 
my um my answer was that my answer in in the short term was I absolutely don't know um I guess my subsequently I found myself thinking about my 94 year old mother who has um one kidney one lung um, osteoporosis and is living with dementia and um is still in her own home um, with a certain amount of care, but actually fighting off all our attempts to give her more care. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, my father was a, a um, Japanese prisoner of war for three and a half years. And, you know, who knows how he came through that. So um, I suppose maybe it's just in the genes, really. Um, I mean, the the other part of the answer, I guess, is that at the point where I the ski the skiing accident, I think was um, I think I was in utter denial for a very long time about how serious it was, and um, until one of my doctors said, "You do realise that if." It had it would have been a different vertebra, you wouldn't have walked away. Um, but I guess it's a sort of and I I think it's 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 not just me, it's a bit of a family thing that you know if if something happens, um that's kind of outside of your control, then the first thing to do is to is to research it, find out as much as you can about it and, you know, what you can do about it. So maybe that's a way of kind of getting it back under control. So, um, you know, so when when I broke my back, for example, you know, I remember distinctly saying to myself, well, I'm not having this. Oh, no, no, what it was, it was that I I was in a spinal support course for several months. And then I went back to see the consultant who um, who said, well, well, why, well, you don't need that anymore. But, but um, you basically you just need to go I, I can't do any more for you you basically need to go away and, and look after yourself for the rest of your life so on the one hand of course with you know with the benefit of massive hindsight that was actually very good advice you know look after yourself for the rest of your life um in the moment um I was a bit underwhelmed and I was even more underwhelmed when um 18 months later, I was still in pain every day. And, and I just woke up one morning and went, I'm really not having this. I'm really not going to live like this. Um, and so I just set about sort of trying to find ways to, to make things better for myself and found myself exploring, you know, the highways and byways of complementary medicine. And then you know, the universe presented me with an opportunity to train as a Reiki practitioner. <laughs> and so I went and did that. And um, amazingly, the pain went away. Um, and so then I um, 
found myself running seminars for my my Reiki master, and uh, so did that for a bit. Um, so so I I think that's maybe that's it. It's the sort of urge to grieve for a bit, but then get annoyed to want to do something about it. Um, and so you know it's. Um, when I was diagnosed with um, chronic fatigue syndrome at the end of 2013, um, I was very, very angry with my doctor, <laughs> with my GP. And I actually remember saying to him, I can't possibly have that. I can't possibly have that because then I'll give up. Um, and so then, of course, I went away and I looked it up. <laughs> I did some research and I was going, oh, dear, I think he's right. Oh, bother. Um, but then, you know, started sort of researching, finding out as much as I could and embarked on a sort of successive journey of doing various, peeling away the sort of various layers of, of, of healing to um, to get to where I am now, which is in massively better shape. So that's a very long answer to the question is basically, I think. Um, Probably a certain amount of bloody-mindedness um, combined with a, a, a wish to be still in, in control in some some ways. And actually, as I hear myself saying that, I'm thinking that's exactly what my mother's doing. She's sort of desperate to stay in control of her situation for as long as possible. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's kind of family trait as well. Yeah, and the other piece that was in there was definitely like, you know, increasing understanding. Um, it sounds like uh, you know uh, yeah. through the research through all, all kinds of things. Um, yeah, and let's let's like let's take our break. So we're going to take a break in the middle of this call. And and you said that's because you never schedule calls for for as long as I, I schedule these calls. And the truth is, I don't either. I want to just before we take a break, like I think it's a really it's always interesting to hear about people how people organize their time and manage their energy. And I wondered if maybe it's to do with what we've just been talking about. But where did that practice of of never having the long calls come from? Um, it's partly to do with managing my own energy, and it's partly um, looking at the work of um, people like David Rock and you know others in in sort of neuro in neuro leadership. Um, and the evidence that they're producing that that people, human beings actually can't can't concentrate for longer than a certain length of time and therefore can't think well. And so if your work is all about helping people to think well, and by the way, that includes myself, I always want to be able to think well, then um, giving myself the space and time to... um, you know, to, to take breaks is, is sort of part of that. So it's you know a combination of, of neuroscience and um, what I've worked out that I need to, to, to continue to, to do a good job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that um, having this conversation just before we take a break is ironic, given what we've just been saying. But um, <laughs> just, just before we do that, what's the, um, how does that look? practically so what do you how do you like how do you manage your time what are you you know is it particular arrangements you have with clients 
just those kind of things is it is it just that you build it in yeah what do you do practically to look after your energy what's the practices that you've you've developed in terms of these breaks and then let's take a break sure um so if i'm if i'm planning a training day for example then um no such no session will be longer than 90 minutes so there will always be some kind of a break after 90 minutes which which could just be right let's have let's just pause for five minutes while everybody stands up and stretches and if you need to you can whisk to the loo or it might be a sort of slightly longer one you know let's take coffee um you know so whenever I'm even running a supervision group for for two and a half hours you know we'll always have a 15 minute break in the middle of that um so typically coaching thinking session you know would be 90 minutes and so 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 that would be uh, that would be fine um in terms of managing my own energy i um i've learned for example that if i'm if i'm looking after my mother for the weekend i always have to have monday off um so I don't schedule. So I've actually got it scheduled in my diary that I have Monday off on the weekends when I'm scheduled to look after my mum. I my energy is always better in the morning. So when I possibly can, I schedule all of my client work for the morning. Um, so I'm going with my own own rhythms, and that doesn't quite help with um, the client that I've got in. Um, in the states at the moment but then to my to my horror she's quite happy to work at seven o'clock in the morning her time so um so I guess that works okay um and um it's probably it's I mean I've, I've been gradually building up my my capacity but I still don't work it's rare for me to work five days a week um, I yeah. do sometimes, um, but that would be unusual. Just because, because I'm, I'm always wanting to to be at my best. So I, um, I try and manage my energy in that way. And of course, you know, cl- clients don't know that, <laughs> that you're you're having a bit of a nap in the afternoon. I mean, what, you know, I'm telling you that, but every so often I will have a nap in the afternoon. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love it, Anne. And I think part of the reason I wanted to ask you about it as soon as you said, can we have a break in the middle is because I think it's a, it's a really important to hear about these practices that help you be at your best. And some of them will be specific to you, but a lot of them resonate with me and the things that I've thought about or do as well. Um, and so I, I love hearing that. Let's do that now. So for listeners, we'll be right back, but um, we are going to have a nice break mid-call. So Anne, welcome back. We've had our our little break, which is yeah very lovely. Um, and maybe listeners have taken a nice little break as part of their, or, you know, whatever they're however they're listening. To bring us back into the conversation, I wondered if we could just go back to 1993 again. 1993 again. I've said the date right this time. Um, and you know, this is going to be a hard thing to do. So I appreciate that. But you know, how. How did it go? So now you're one of the senior faculty for Time to Think. You train people, you supervise people in it. Give us some sense of how you went from this person that rocked up at the training uh, on the advice of the boss 
uh, of your ex-boss rather, um, to learn about a book that you'd never read from a person you'd never heard of. Um, how did you get from there to this place you are now? Or like, what were the key moments in that? Oh, actually, when you put it like that, it does sound pretty, pretty weird. It's funny, it? isn't it? it, well, it yeah. but, but, but what I didn't say in the summary there is, you know, a book you'd never heard about from a woman you'd never heard of. Um, but when you got there, it spoke to something you've been doing the whole time but for your whole life. And that's why it, it doesn't sound weird to me that you, yeah. you ended up where you are now. But yeah, without that bit, it is a bit like, what happened? Yeah. 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 Well, so at the point when I first met Nancy, I was 18 months, less than 18 months into my recovery from um, breaking my back and was still you know, very much in recovery mode. Um, But what had happened was that um, I'd been made redundant a couple of months after I broke my back. And um, as I sort of gradually started to to recover, the phone started to ring with people going, we hear you're at home, Um, we've got this little project would you feel up to helping us with it? So um, so I started doing various bits of freelance work, um, doing all sorts of things, including being um, a research assistant for um, Hamish McRae, who at the time was the economic editor of The Independent and was writing a book, um, and I, wait, just as a little aside, are you? Do you have an ec- expertise in economics as well? No, no. But um, my my very dear friend, um, my dear, sadly late friend Justin Arundale, was at the time the chief librarian of the Independent. He knew that Hamish was looking for a research assistant. Um, you know, basically to find some references to support the premises that he was making in his book, which was called The World in 2020, which I am now reminded I really need to go back and read (laughs) see whether his predictions, how many of his predictions were correct. Um, And Hamish had said to Justin, you know, do you know anybody? And Justin said, um, well, you could try library schools or you could, try you know economics courses or this my friend Anne Hathaway who I happen to know is you know bright woman with an MBA you know sitting at home not doing very much um and so I met Hamish and she said he said yeah I'd like you to do this for me please and so I actually had a, a very very interesting few months sort of finding references for him and um I mean you know it absolutely spoke to my if you don't know something, look it up, yeah. <laughs> try and research it. Um, so, yeah, so so I, I was doing, you know, a number of sort of fairly um, interesting projects. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I then trained as a Reiki practitioner, partly to, to manage my own pain levels, and then I ended up being seminar organizer for my Reiki master so so the first sort of few years after my after my break my back I did 
a whole bunch of different things as a, as a freelancer. And of course, I, I'd done the training with Nancy. And then as I got better, the universe started presenting me with opportunities to put it in practice. So I had, um, by that stage, um, in fact, nine months after my um, my injury, I got married, um, which was, as it turned out, a formative life experience. Um, and um, my then husband, you know, casting around for people to connect me with, had happened to mention to his boss that I was looking for work and, you know, had he got any leads. And so I ended up getting introduced to the um, head of a leadership development um, company down, based down in Wales who were, as it happened, um, working with um, a well-known Anglo-French organisation building a link between the two countries. Um, and he'd been doing some work for, for the, the train crew team. And this is, this is so long ago, it was before the tunnel was open. But they were in that sort of stage of, um, of finalising stuff. Um, ready for, for the, the sort of full hard launch. So they were doing sort of soft launches and stuff. Um, anyway, so he had been trying to work with the train crew management team who was sort of Anglo-French and um, hadn't been getting anywhere because he didn't speak French. And um, whether it was a certain amount of, we are not going to listen to you because you do not speak French, um, or genuinely, actually, some of them did not speak brilliant English. Um, but anyway, he was he was getting nowhere. So he had determined he needed a fluent French speaker to work with these people. So, um, so my ex-husband's boss sort of mentions all oh, this woman, Anne Hathaway, who's, you know, does this and that and speaks French. So long story short, I ended up um, working with these guys. And when I heard about the brief, I just thought, you know, these people need the thinking environment. So it was yeah. like, you know, suddenly I was, the universe presented with me with this opportunity to, um, and actually that was a really, really formative moment because um, I had started off the day with, um, you know, basically sort of introducing them to the 10 components and getting them to sort of do a, some small bits of practice. And then I thought, I really need to demonstrate this because, you know, certain amount of scepticism going on here. And so I'd spotted that there was one individual in the group from the UK side who was clearly lost you know, a lot of interesting questions and was... Um, you know, was was clearly very engaged. So I, I sidled up to him at um, at coffee time and said, you know, would you mind being the person I would you mind being the thinker while I demonstrate a thinking session? Um, and bless him, he said yes. So um, that was how I met um, Dr. Christopher Goscombe, as he now is, um, who's been a sort of major force in. Um, 
in my career, as it turns out. Yeah, um, and there's a beautiful testimonial from him on your website, I think, like just yes. a little phrase of just like, yeah. I think I was going yeah. to write it down, but I'm not sure I did. Like, it's just such a lovely testimonial. Yeah. Obviously, the work you did with him or and or his mm-hmm. company really hit home. So so basically, I did, I did a demonstration. And essentially, you know, I asked him our classic opening question, which is, what would you like to think about? And what are your thoughts? And off he went. <laughs> and um, 45 minutes later, he'd had a number of breakthroughs and everybody's sitting there going. Um, so then one of the French guys went, yes, but that's all very well for Chris, you know, because he's a really good thinker. So I just thought, well, well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, would you like to come and do it? And I'll do it in French with you. Um, so we did. And, you know, he thought for 25 minutes and um, we got to the end of it. And he said, well, you know, that wasn't very long. You know, that was only about five minutes. Uh, no. <laughs> so then I got them successively with the rest of the group observing each to do sort of be thinking partners for each other. And what was absolutely glorious was that as we sort of moved around the room, um, you could see the penny dropping that they were all going, oh, I'm listening to this person think about the business. And actually, we're all on the same side, which they had thought, you know, they were basically, you know, in conflict, you know, classic sort of. Let's reenact the Hundred Years' War <laughs> between the French and the English. Um, and, um, yeah, so suddenly they realised they were all on the same side. So, um, yeah, so that was my first sort of big experience of introducing the um, the thinking t- environment to a group. Um, and it was the leader of that group who subsequently asked me if I would coach her. Mm. So that was a kind of starting point. And then progressively I was asked, I found myself, I guess, because, you know, that had been sort of a bit of a baptism by fire. So that gave yeah, me... Yeah, you didn't choose an easy confidence. chance to, like, <laughs> test drive that stuff, did you? It was like you say, it's like, oh, you know, I didn't, like baptism of fire. Oh, let's, Amazing. let's do it in English and in French. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, just because I've read it in your bio, but... You know, you 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 studied French at university. Is that right? That's how. Is that yeah. why you're you're fluent in French? Yeah. yeah. What, and what at that point, I'd also um, I did my MBA at INSEAD in in uh, France. Course, so, yeah. um, you know, so I was I was at the time still pretty fluent. I'm a bit rusty at the moment, <laughs> which is a source of some grief to me, I have to say. Um, so. So that was kind of formative because I got to coach Sarah. Um, so that was my first sort of real example of being being asked to, to be a coach. Um, but also, most crucially, of course, I met Chris, who then subsequently went on to work for EasyJet. And um, so a number of years later, when he was at EasyJet, he rang me up and said, um, I've got this situation. The chief executive wants to create a um, what's the word I'm looking for? A staff representative group um, to um, to help us continue to 
to retain the kind of culture that we've had as a sort of small entrepreneurial startup. You know, he wants to keep this going as we as we grow. And so part of the vehicle for doing that is to be this, this body of elected representatives from all around the, the group who um who will have a brief to be able to to come up with with good ideas to to help us retain that kind of culture. So um, and I don't really know how to do that, any ideas. So I just kind of went, well, you just need the thinking environment, Chris. I'm sorry, but that's what you need. Um, because what was interesting about this group was that it was sort of composed of everybody from an 18-year-old on her first in her first job who'd never been to a meeting before to who was the representative of the most junior cabin crew to the senior people. Um, so there was the chief pilot who was the the um the pilot's representative and he'd previously been the head of the Concord fleet, you know, so very senior in the aviation world. Um, and the management representative was a guy with an MBA. And you know, there were kind of all stages in between. And the thing that you most want to avoid when you've got a group like that is exactly what we found, um, which was that, you know, the the senior people think that it's their their job to come up with all the ideas and the junior people think it's not their place to come up with the, all the jobs. So you've got um, this, this sort of classic um, sort of intermeshing meshing of limiting assumptions about how, how things should work. So um, one of the components of the thinking environment is equality. It's this idea that good, the concept that good ideas can come from anywhere, regardless of, of seniority or age or rank or any of those things. So, so I said to Chris, look, you know, you need, I think this is what, what would be a great idea. You know, I'll train this group in holding their meetings in the thinking environment. Um, and that was another sort of terribly formative experience. And it led to, effectively me being a freelance member of his um, people and organisation development team for the next five years and, you know, multiple iterations of a leadership development programme, which included the thinking environment, various pieces of coaching. Um, yeah, and, and so I actually had, was incredibly blessed to have the opportunity to work with an organisation for five years and sort of, build the thinking environment in, into the culture. Um, so, so essentially what, what happened, I suppose, was that I just kept getting lots of experience in, in using the thinking environment in different ways. And then fast forward to 2009, and um, by that stage, Nancy was doing a lot of teaching was wanting to do more writing and decided that she um, wanted to delegate the um, the supervision post course sort of su supervision of people's practicum um, to somebody else and chose me so so essentially when when anybody does any of our of the thinking 
environment qualifying courses there's always a period of sort of okay you've done the course now now basically go out and do it on some real people and come back and tell us about it and what you've been learning um and so yeah so nancy asked me if i take over that from her which i've basically been doing ever since and so i became the first european member of faculty uh, there were already um, teachers in in South Africa um, at that stage. So South Africa was sort of as a, um, somewhere that Nancy had been quite early on and and done a lot of teaching and, and so on down there. But yeah, so I became the first UK member of faculty and. Then in a couple of years later, she decided she didn't want to teach the facilitators course anymore. She wanted to focus on, on the thinking session and thinking partnerships and coaching and teachers of, of thinking partnerships. So I then took, took over teaching that from her. Um, and then rather, rather wonderfully, um, she, my my old friend Monica, who I had been at the university with, and had by this stage um, was running a leadership development company with with her husband. Um, you know, we'd had conversations about the thinking environment for for a long time over the years, and you know, she'd got more and more interested, and eventually decided that she wanted to train it in it. And um, so Nancy decided she didn't want to go to Sweden. So yours truly went to Sweden and um, trained the first sort of group of, of people over there, including Monica. So, um, yeah, so it kind of and then um, progressively um, Nancy has, has been sort of pulling back from from teaching and particularly from sort of big groups because by um so I mentioned I think I mentioned earlier that we were sort of from quite early on Nancy was running these sort of in practice days for, for practitioners to get together to practice their skills and network and share experience and so on and these over time morphed into um collegiate days so the the body of of thinking environment of qualified thinking environment practitioners is is the the time to think collegiate and so in the UK um, we've had sort of quarterly meetings that were run by by Nancy and um, you know with with a certain amount of teaching and demonstrations and, and practice so in um, so Nancy had already decided back in 2019 that she wanted to to pull back from those and then because there were enough faculty to hand them over to to the faculty not least because it meant that we could sort of divvy up the collegiate between us and have smaller groups so you could do um, demonstrations with a lot more psychological safety um, and so and that kind of coincided with the whole um the, the pandemic hitting and oh let's take everything online <laughs> um, and so um yeah, so I then found myself um, running collegiate days online, which has been um, actually it's been brilliant. It's been it's been really really interesting and 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 quite fun and getting um, people from outside the UK to come as well. So we've 
we've had. Um, and one of the features of a collegiate day is that you always sort of send people off in, in the afternoon to go and have a proper full thinking session with each other. And what's been lovely about that is having people from other parts of Europe and, um, well, actually not just Europe because um, uh, my colleague Kiati, who's in Singapore, has, has has come a couple of times, which is very, very noble of her. <laughs> completely the wrong time of the day. Um, but um, one of the one of the extraordinary things about about the whole sort of listening to ignite is that actually you don't necessarily need to know what the person is thinking about, so they can think in a foreign language. Or they can think in their first language, which is, um, and you you need to tell people that they they you know they they need to stop and tell you when you need to ask them another question, for example, or you know what the question is you now like me to ask. So there does need to be a bit of thinking partnering going on, um, but you don't necessarily need to understand what they're what they're saying. So that's been a, a lovely thing, a sort of you know, a certain amount of sort of. Really? Does that work? And then coming back and going, that was amazing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of started from, oh, here's an opportunity. Let me just sort of take it out in, and work with some groups and then onto the coaching and then being asked to be Nancy's practicum supervisor and then collegiate meetings and actually What's also been lovely for me is that people who have done their practicum with me have then gone, I'd really like to carry on working with you. You know, could we sort of carry on doing? Well, I hate the word supervision because it doesn't sort of sit well with the whole principle of equality, but can we carry on doing professional personal development sessions? So I've gone, oh, that's that's another way that that things have evolved. Yeah, and and um like I said, I, I wrongly attributed Monica's question to Eve earlier on, but those both of those two uh, people both sent fantastic questions. And one of them from Monica was, you know, speaking about that supervision piece, what has that taught you about coaching and the role of the thinking environment in coaching? And I think that that's such a good question and such an interesting thing to pause on. I think... I have to say that, that that role of being a practicum supervisor has been such a joy and such a learning opportunity for me, um, not least in sort of observing which bits of the teaching seem to land and which bits mm. don't. Um, but I think mostly... Um, the so many stories about how the power of listening really um, and and the you know the the transformation that can come. I mean, we always say just listening, but actually, it's not just listening because. Um, what people discover is it's actually when you give that level of focus and attention to people, it's it's quite tiring. In fact, it, it takes some practice and, and a muscle that needs to be built up. 
Um, so I, I think that's one of one of the key things, the sort of, you know, the constant reinforcement that actually that that power of being heard to, to transform people. Um, the other thing that I've I think I've observed, that there's no think about it, I have observed in my own practice, but also you see it with other people, is that um, and I think I touched on this earlier, is that not everybody not not everybody trusts their own inner wisdom. Um, and those are the people who struggle to have when they get are given the sort of spaciousness of being listened to because they're they've got used to the idea that somebody else is wiser than me about what's right for me. So I need you to tell me. Um, yeah, and, and how when you're when you're in a thinking partnership or you're coaching someone who's in that situation, and yeah, what a I mean, even just naming that as a as a thing that people work through or deal with or or live with, like what a powerful thing to be able to notice when you're with someone who's who's mm-hmm. like that, who doesn't quite trust their own inner wisdom in that way. What have you found works to help them make use of that of that kind of attention, that kind of listening? Mm-hmm. Um, my my um, colleague Linda Aspie has a lovely, lovely thing that I have regularly told my students about, which is that, um, and it's it's actually the one of the things that um, that we teach in the coaching program. It's about the the spectrum of independence. So if you imagine, you know, if you, if you sort of put various different coaching approaches coaching mentoring leadership development approaches on on a spectrum then at one end there would be the sort of highly interventionist um one-to-one leadership development teaching piece really and then way down the other end is the the completely independent thinking i'm going to listen to you here's the sort of big space let me know if you want any input from me which would be the thinking environment and sort of all places in between and one of the things that um linda found was terribly valuable with her coaching clients was to to show them at the outset that spectrum of dependence and go i need you to know that this is the end i'm be working towards getting you towards but where would you like me to start so you're meeting the the, the client where they are mm. and then presumably gradually moving towards yeah. that place yeah 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 as so they sort of start to trust themselves more yeah yeah and like, you've talked about that story and, and told it so beautifully there's the story that is of of how you got from going to that initial training or workshop with your former colleague to now um, Nancy Klein's obviously been important in your life. And I, and I wonder, you know, as you think about her and her work and how it's influenced you, like, what do you notice that, that feels particularly important about, about her, about her work, about her impact on you? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it's always wonderful when you have in your life somebody who is an inspiration. And um, 
And Nancy certainly is that. I mean, you know, not not least because of um, any anybody who's ever seen Nancy speak, she is extraordinary. Fascinating me. She absolutely hates doing it, but she is utterly, utterly brilliant at it. Um, and that exquisite way with words translates into her writings as well. And um, so I think it's always it's always a joy to watch somebody who is an exquisite craftsperson at work. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, a big fan of the repair shop, for example, you know, watching those amazing artisans, you know, do restore pictures and pieces of leather and wood and you know, just extraordinary. And I have just always loved that um, watching people who are who are utterly utterly skilled and and I've had the benefit of being able to watch Nancy doing that for several decades now and you know there's an interesting moment in the story where she chose you or between you you chose you to to take on that role to be that first member of the faculty why do you think she chose you or or yeah why did why was it you You'd have to ask Nancy that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, I mean, you know, that's... I think because... I think two things. The, the first is that she knew that I was vastly experienced. But the second thing is that I think she thought that we would work well together. Um, yeah yeah I suspect as well suspect that it was because you do great work um and you know part of the reason one of the great questions that Eve and it actually was Eve this time suggested I ask you about mm. that you sent across was about humility and modesty and we got a little sign of your humility and modesty as you quickly went through the what sounded like quite an amazing career path before the accident at, the, at that point in that first phase of the career and some amazing things you achieved. And yeah, I wonder about that. Uh, and because we got that prompt from, from Eve, how does that modesty and humility serve you? And how is it a work in progress? Um. Well, I suppose there are two answers to that. Is there one of which is it does, and one of which is it doesn't. <laughs> um, so the the thing about working in a thinking environment, whether you're doing it as a as a as a coach, thinking partner, or whether you are using it, for example, as a leader of a team. Or, um, or indeed, as a supervisor, is you know, in in most contexts, is that actually 
to really trust that the person or the people in front of you are have have the capacity to think well for themselves and to come up with better ideas than you might come up with for them is a real call to humility. So I guess I'm helped in 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 that sense. Um, I mean, what's 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 interesting about it, and um, I'm kind of mentally thinking to myself, hmm, what's going to happen over the next few years? Because part of the reason why um, I think I found myself sort of keeping my head very much below the parapet, and I, you know, I was forced to recognise in 2018 when um, Eve Blesser nominated me for the Coaching at Work um, award, which I subsequently got, um, was that I, you know, I have been keeping my head below the parapet and um, and, there's, and there's a reason for that, um, which is, which is a, you know, which is to do with my personal history is, you know, I was... Um, I found myself in um, in an emotionally abusive relationship with with my husband, subsequently ex husband, which I allowed to carry on for far too long. After we were no, after we were divorced, but still had contact because of um, because of our daughter, and um, I kind of learned to to keep my head below the parapet. Because of because of that, and um, and actually, I've been reading more recently about the well. I mean, actually, I know all about the traumatic effect of that because actually, there was a, a a point a couple of years ago. Where, actually, after the award, which, which was fascinatingly a trigger for getting myself some some treatment for PTS complex PTSD. Um, I'm not sure if Eve knows that actually, that she was the catalyst for me actually, you know, having another sort of step change in, in my own healing. Um, but actually, you know, one of the things that came out at, at one point of that was the realization, ah, oh, that's the moment when I stopped feeling safe in the world. And of course, if you don't feel safe in the world, then you certainly don't stick your head above above the parapet so as I say you know kind of watch this space about what might happen as you know the the healing sort of works its way through the system well I mean apart from anything else here I am I was so, gonna say the same thing with that all in mind Anne, and yeah I'm extra feel extra privileged that you're here and thanks so much for being here and also thanks for yeah sharing that story so honestly and openly as well it's it's really interesting because actually when I when I sent you that list with the questions from Monica, I thought, should I should I add that bit into it? Should I put the complex PTSD thing in? And I and you'll notice that I didn't. Um, and um, literally yesterday, it was like the universe was going, oi, <laughs> um, because I spotted two separate blog posts on Twitter from coaches that I follow, both referring to their own experience of coercive control and the impact that that, that has on, on confidence and, um, you know, general 
well-being. And I thought, oh, okay, all right, fine. So, and the hideous, hideous statistic that um, one in three women between 25 and 59 will have experienced domestic abuse of one sort or another. I mean, that's just appalling. So, but that did kind of give me a bit of, oh, you know, maybe I'm not as alone as I thought I was. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, we're, I mean, you know, it's, it's a real truism that we're all struggling with, with more things than, than we realise. But the, I, I think what's, what's good about it is that if you work with it, you can actually turn it into, um, well, it's kind of spinning straw into gold, really. You know, that it's, it's I mean, over the years, it's meant that I'm, I've had compassion and empathy for for people across this, you know, a, a reasonable spectrum. So that, um, and also that I always want people to feel safe with me, because I know what it's like not to feel safe. If anyone's listening, Anne, who's, you know, has felt, you know, has and felt, I'm has, sorry, I should have put a trigger warning in that, shouldn't I? <laughs> Yeah, well, I can, I can, I can mention it at the start of the episode uh, when we, when I record the intro. Um, but I guess I'm curious now. We're here. If someone's heard that story and they've had a feeling from it, a bit like you got from those blog posts of "I'm not alone," or maybe they're just they're just coming to terms with what has happened to them in some way. Maybe just on the really highest level, really. Where did where did you go for this part of your healing? Like, and is that is that somewhere you would recommend that other people go, or how how would you approach that kind of question? So, I had been aware from information that I've been able to gather, mostly from the the wonderful. Um, Alex Howard, who runs the Optimum Health Clinic, that one of the elements that could have um, been a, a precursor to chronic fatigue syndrome was experiencing trauma. And so as I kind of worked my way through, you know, can I sort out my nutrition? Can I take supplements? You know, can I calm my nervous system you know I worked my way over a number of years through various sort of stages of healing I'd clearly by the time I got to um, 2018 got to the point where it was like my system was ready to go oh okay now we can deal with complex PTSD (laughs) Um, and um and I'd, I'd, I'd known it was there, but I'd got no sort of symptoms to be able to go to the NHS, for example, or anybody else. You know, look, I, 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 I know something's gone here. So actually, the um, very long story short, um, I ended up being formally diagnosed with chronic PTSD in 2018. And the I was incredibly, incredibly lucky that I got sent for um, a course of um, 
EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and repatterning. Extraordinary, extraordinary technique that was just amazingly powerful and brilliantly helpful. Um, and so if anybody has a way of getting access to that, if they then which is available in certain parts of the NHS, um, then that's that's amazing. Um, I've also done subsequently done work in uh, with um, Art Geiser, the founder of Energetic NLP, um, who also does some very clever and very healing things. And um, so those are the two main things that have, have given me a huge shift over the last couple of years. Amazing. Thank, thank you for sharing. And, and, you know, I don't have the personal experience of this, but I've done some, just for people who are listening who might be in that kind of situation, I've done some training with a man called David Trelevin, um, who is a Canadian, but, but often what he points at in some ways is, I think is somatic experiencing, which is another for people who are interested and want to look that up is another modality, which I have heard and read incredible things about the power that it, it, it can have with people who have suffered PTSD in different ways. So it's worth, it's worth people looking, looking to that as well. If, if, if they're interested, if it feels right. Um, and I'm aware we're, we're almost at time and you've been so generous with your time and with, sharing your story. And I feel very lucky that that you you also sent me 10 questions, five from Eve and five from Monica. And I actually want to go to another of Eve's now, because it's just such a good one. And uh, maybe you will bring us into some like some summary to kind of begin bringing the conversation to a close, but it's a big one as well. She said, what would you say to the you of 10 years ago um, that might encourage some changes for yourself from 10 years ago? Mm. So, um, 10 years ago, I was still allowing my ex-husband into my orbit and having an influence on me um, because I thought I ought to because, you know, he was my daughter's father. So, I think... I realised that what I would say to my me 10 years ago is, firstly, make sure that you are adequately resourced. And, of course, that was two years before I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. So, so I was... If, if you're going to work as a coach or in any kind of leadership development, you need to be well-resourced, whatever that means for you, whether that's sleep, nutrition, friends, support at home. You need to have that in order to be um, sustainably effective. And I didn't have that at the time. So that is absolutely what I would say to to me 10 years ago um, to, to make sure that I'm, I'm, I was adequately resourced and, and had what I needed, not what I thought I ought to want. 
or ought to allow. allow. Mm. So I, yeah, that would be my that would be my key message to myself. Nice. Wow. And thanks so much. Um, feel like there were probably, uh, you know, fifty other places that we could have jumped off for a different, um, a different version of this conversation. So, but thanks. It's been it's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you. Really appreciate all the the kind of practical side of things that you've brought to this conversation, especially talking about the thinking environment. I've, I've loved hearing your story and, and getting to know you. And, and thanks again for your courage in putting your head above the parapet to be here and also for sharing the the, the story that you have in the, in the last few minutes. Um, <clears throat> but people who want to learn about the thinking environment, of course, can do the training. I guess what I would say about it that we haven't really touched on actually is one of the things I love about about a certainly time to think is there's some really practical frameworks that people can learn from from the book but also in much more detail i'm sure from from the trainings around um how to hold the one-on-one conversations and yeah we haven't even got to talk about incisive questions which would have been a fun a fun thing to do uh, and and also around the group stuff and, and i've been thinking about that recently for some group work that i've done which is uh or i've got coming up which is which is lovely to have that in mind for it and um is there anywhere else that you would Point people who want to learn more about you or the or the thinking environment. Um, well, um, there's there's my website, which is www.anhathaway.co.uk. Although, um, and and there's a contact form on that. So you know, if people have very specific questions or they'd like to to talk further, then I'm um, happy to happy to talk to people. Um, the schedule of, of courses will be on the Time to Think website um, with, you know, which are in all parts of, of the country and indeed around the world. Um, so, and so there's a lot more detail about, um, about what the different courses, because there's effectively there's there's sort of two streams if you like so there's um the coaching stream so there's the foundation level for that would be the thinking partnership course followed by the coaching course um and then there's the the working with groups so the the um the foundation level for that would be in fact the foundation course and then the facilitator qualification and then you know if people are interested beyond that then you can become a thinking environment thinking partnership teacher and a consultant and you know ultimately faculty so that so there is a, a pathway but um so there's lots of information on on the time to think website as well fantastic and is there anything else you want to share that we haven't managed to touch on in this conversation or anything else before we before we wrap up oh goodness um well mostly i just want to appreciate your your perceptiveness and your ability to create um, a, a space for me to think in. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you. I, I, and I'm, I'm recognising that, that uh, you know, appreciation or encourage, encouragement is one of the 10 parts of the thinking environment, 
right? That's, that's, that's appreciation. Appreciation's yeah. in there. I'm also realizing I should have asked, what more do you want to think about uh, or say before we finish? Not, <laughs> not that, which is a, a thinking environment question for anyone who doesn't know that is listening. Um, and it's been a total pleasure and privilege. Um, and thank you so much. And for people listening, we'll put links to the, the, the websites that Anne just mentioned and other things we've mentioned wherever uh, you're listening and also at thecoachesjourney.com. But yeah, Anne, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hello, everybody. Robbie here again. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Anne. Um, I certainly enjoyed listening back to it just now. Um, and before you all go off to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day, I wanted to just let you know about a couple of ways that you can support my work and the Coach's Journey podcast. Um, the first is, of course, as I mentioned at the start of the, the, the podcast, my new book is out. And if you are interested in creativity, if you're interested in starting new habits, if you're interested in helping somebody to do that, take a look at that book. You can find a link um, wherever you're, you're listening to this, but also it's on Amazon. You can find it via my website. It's called How to Start a Book, Business or Creative Project When You're Stuck, How to Start When You're Stuck. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that, that you take some, some good things away from that if you do check it out. And please let me know. Please let me know, especially if it, if it gets you started on something, because that's one of my big measures of success for the book. Back to the podcast. The first thing, a bit like with the book, the first most useful thing you can do to help me with the podcast is to spread the word. Um, so if you know a coach who would be interested in hearing this, somebody who you think would really benefit from listening to Anne talk about the thinking environment, a community of people who might like, like either of those things, please do share this episode or the podcast more generally with them. Um, you might also be, you know, love what I have to say, um, enjoy listening to me on these podcasts. And if you want to work with me, if you're a coach and you want to work with me, um, if other people want to work with me, check out RobbieSwale.com. For coaches, um, I'd really recommend the Coaches Journey community. So I designed it because I think that uh, the way that I know to support coaches best is in a group because there are so many levels of learning. But I also wanted to make something affordable and accessible um, so that you can really choose how you engage with me and how you work with me as a coach. So as part of the community, there are 10 group coaching calls every year and depending on how much money you pay as part of your membership you can you join different numbers of those some of them include one-on-one -on -one work with me all of them include being connected to other wonderful coaches um if being coached by me um isn't the thing that for you but you want to support the podcast financially then you can also become a supporter that's at patreon.com slash the coach's journey and there you can pay a small amount of money every month going up to a larger amount of money of course and, and get different um thank yous from me uh, as as part of that find out more about the coach's journey community at the coach's journey.com slash community um, and thank you so much to alex mcintyre alex swallow joey owen ken brewer and, and ruth savile for for your ongoing support um, I hope we have you, listener, back again with us on the Coach's Journey podcast sometime soon. Of course, there's lots of, of episodes from the last two and a bit years to go back to if you haven't heard all of those. Um, definitely, if you haven't listened and you love this episode, check out the one with recent one with Raquel Ark, number 33, because Raquel is an expert in listening uh, too. And so we get into some wonderful conversations about just what happens when listening is done in that episode as well. So that's enough from me. Have a wonderful rest of the day, whatever is, is coming up for you. And I hope we have you back uh, listening to the Coach's Journey podcast sometime soon. Mm -hmm.